Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Rebecca Robbins. It is Thursday, October 1st, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. First up, we'll talk with Saad Omer, a vaccine expert from Yale, about whether side effects associated with COVID-19 vaccines could be unblinding the ongoing clinical trials. Next, University of California, San Francisco cardiologist Ethan Weiss calls in to tell us about new clinical trial results that call into question the benefits of intermittent fasting. Finally, we'll bring you another lightning round with hot takes on the first presidential debate, new data on a COVID-19 treatment, and a spicy congressional hearing. But first, a word from our sponsor. RNAi therapeutics treat the root genetic cause of disease rather than the symptoms by silencing the expression of the genes that make disease-causing proteins. Alnylam has pioneered RNAi therapeutics by translating the Nobel Prize-winning discovery of RNAi into an innovative new class of medicines, which we believe has limitless possibilities. Learn more at alnylam.com slash statnews. That's A-L-N-Y-L-A-M dot com forward slash statnews. All of the late-stage clinical trials for COVID-19 vaccines that are underway right now are randomizing participants to receive either the experimental vaccine or a saline placebo. The studies are blinded, which means participants aren't told what's being injected into their arms. Randomized placebo-controlled trials are considered the gold standard and usually deliver the most scientifically robust results. However, COVID-19 vaccines, like many vaccines generally, do cause side effects. And if participants experience a side effect, for example, muscle aches or soreness at the injection site, or if they run a fever, the blind on the study can be broken, which could be problematic. So joining us to discuss this unblinding issue in more detail and how it might impact the COVID-19 vaccine studies is Saad Omer. Saad is a vaccine expert and director of the Yale Institute for Global Health. Saad, welcome to the Read Out Loud. Oh, my pleasure. So let's start the discussion by stepping back to explain why vaccine clinical trials employ a control arm. Why is this important instead of injecting all participants with a vaccine? Yeah, because, you know, we need to know compared to what? Compared to baseline, because otherwise you would not know uh, whether you're getting certain side effects just by fluke or you're getting, you know, measurement of efficacy also uh, requires a baseline. So control groups establish that baseline in a fairly robust manner. And how important or not is making sure that participants don't know if they've been injected, let's say, with the experimental vaccine or with a placebo control? Yeah, because, you know, there can be biases, not in a sort of a bad sense, but the very natural human sense in terms of if you know that you have um, the experimental vaccine, your likelihood of reporting your symptoms may change, uh, even, you know, subconsciously, you know, you don't have to proactively undermine the study. And actually, most of these concerns are that. And actually, most of them are double blind, where um, the study investigators, and especially the personnel who are administering the vaccine, even they don't know what product they're giving, it's, it's, whether it's the intervention one, or the placebo one. So the study pharmacist usually blinds uh, or labels over the two products. They are, there's a lot of effort that is made to make sure that the study products look the same. So it's not just the participant, but also those who are administering the vaccines. And more often than not, it's the uh, principal investigators and all the investigators are blinded too. So we know that the three leading COVID-19 vaccine candidates from Pfizer and BioNTech, Moderna and AstraZeneca and Oxford 
all cause side effects. That has been documented in earlier studies. We've seen also social media posts in which participants claim to know which they were injected with based on side effects or lack thereof. Are you concerned about how that dynamic might impact the ongoing trials? Look, there is a reason why we do blinding. And there may be certain situations where the people are able to tell, but that's not always the case. There's some uh, sort of uh, all sorts of stuff that is happening with a vaccine and a placebo. So I'm not too worried about that. That's a, this is not the first time we are doing blinded trials. And as a whole, uh, the blind is sort of that status is not broken by just a few people sort of trying to guess what they got. And there are a lot of other vaccines that have uh, immediate side effects. So, so just to clarify, there are different types of side effects. And what we have seen so far is what we call reactogenicity. So essentially, that means that short-term side effects in almost all cases without long-term consequences. And these are reactogenic events that we see in trials all the time. And so that's what people are seeing. And, and, and these guesses are highly imperfect. So, you know, some of the concerns that have been raised around this issue are, for instance, you know, if a participant knows that they've been given a, a saline placebo, let's say, they may behave more cautiously for fear of being infected with COVID-19. And, you know, conversely, if a participant thinks that they have received the vaccine, they may be taking more risks uh, thinking that they're protected. But it sounds like you don't think on an aggregate basis that this would have a significant impact on the overall results. Yeah, and, and, and that perception comes from uh, our collective and, and my individual experience with other trials. When people receive these vaccines, they can make guesses, but on an average, these guesses are, are imperfect. And, and even if they modify their behavior, uh, they, people don't really know for sure if, if blinding is maintained um, and if there are no other reasons for them to know, uh, you know, other ways for them to find out what product they got. So lastly, AstraZeneca and Oxford are conducting a clinical trial in the United Kingdom in which the COVID-19 vaccine is compared against an already approved vaccine for meningitis. In other words, the meningitis vaccine is being used for the control arm instead of a saline placebo. What do you think of that trial design? There are pros and cons of that. Uh, and the pros are that if their baseline, again, reactogenic, reactogenic sorry, events that are associated with any vaccine. And so if, uh, you know, it's giving you a little bit of uh, that, it's harder to tell. And also there are other reasons why people are vaccinated with other vaccines as a sort of an active control rather than a placebo control is to provide some benefit to even the control arm right away. So there are pros and cons of that. Uh, it depends on what the study product looks like, how easy it is to mask them uh, with a placebo, with, with a sort of true placebo versus, uh, you know, an active control, et cetera. So it is pretty mainstream to, to make these kinds of choices. And often these choices, as I said, are made based on the characteristic of your intervention vaccine, as well as, you know, other considerations like providing at least some benefit to the population that is in your control group. So thanks for your time today. My pleasure. Next up, we're going to talk about intermittent fasting, an umbrella term encompassing different approaches to meal timing schedules that cycle between periods of eating and periods of not eating. 
It's an approach that's gained more interest in recent years on the promise that it might be able to help people lose or maintain weight or otherwise improve their health. One of the people who's tried it out is University of California, San Francisco cardiologist, Ethan Weiss. Ethan personally started adhering to a form of intermittent fasting known as time-restricted eating, and he tested it out in a randomized clinical trial. The results of that study came out this week, and they were disappointing. Uh, The study, which enrolled 141 adults who are overweight or have obesity, found that intermittent fasting did not lead to a statistically significant difference in weight loss after 12 weeks. Ethan joins us now to talk about those results. Ethan, welcome back to The Read Out Loud. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. So Ethan, tell us about how you personally got into time-restricted eating and how that experience has gone for you. Right. This started with for me about seven or eight years ago when I read the really interesting work that came out of Sachin Panda's group uh, showing a tremendous benefit of time-restricted eating in a mouse model. Initially, they had showed that time-restricted eating could prevent obesity, and they later went on to show that it could actually reverse obesity and improve metabolic health. And and it was really spectacular work. And what was so interesting about it was it looked like it was completely independent of how much the mice ate. So they fed the mice the exact same number of calories, the same macronutrients. Everything was identical about what the mice were doing. The only difference was the time of day that they let them eat. And they found that if they narrowed the feeding window down in mice, that they saw these tremendous metabolic benefits. So I, I thought, wow, this looks really interesting and it's easy to do. So I ended up trying it. So when you and your team set about doing the study of time-restricted eating, how did you think about designing it? Well, I should say I had a good experience with it. I, I lost some weight and ended up telling a bunch of friends. I was telling patients about it. And what was attractive about the mouse experiments was that it was so simple, right? All You, you didn't have to worry about counting calories or doing other complicated things with what you were eating. You just had to change the time of day that you ate. And so we really wanted to test that hypothesis. We felt like we'd start with the simplest, most real world intervention, just a recommendation, a prescription to people to just eat during certain hours and don't eat during certain hours. So again, it would end up being about 16 hours of fasting and eight hours of eating, which I think is very different from the way most people tend to eat throughout the day. They tend to eat from the time they get up until the time they go to bed. So can you walk us through the high level results of the study and, you know, and their potential implications for time restricted eating and and intermittent fasting at large? I don't want to imply that the work that we've done is, is necessarily applicable to any of those kind, other kinds of interventions. But the high level findings for us were number one, it actually was relatively easy for people to do at least as, as they reported it back to us. So that part of the results were, were good. The rest of it was, uh, I'll, I'll highlight it for you really pretty negative. So on average, the people in the whole study who were randomly assigned to get time-restricted eating lost about a kilogram on average. I've done the math that translates to, to an average weight loss of about 0.2 pounds per week over 12 weeks. And I think one of the things that we decided to do early on, and I'm happy and proud that we did, was that we wanted to have a real control arm. So it would be hard to enroll people into a randomized trial telling them that they're just going to get randomized to control it's not like a placebo you do in a you know with a drug trial where you don't know what you're getting. In this case, people really know what they're getting. So we wanted to try and design the trial so that people thought they were getting an intervention no matter what they got. So we came up with this moniker called consistent meal timing. And we told those people to eat three square meals a day and snack when they were hungry. Uh, that was the only difference. So those people also lost weight, which is actually not unusual, right? In weight loss studies, control groups tend to lose weight. And there are lots of potential explanations why that might be. But at the end of the day, there was no statistical difference between the amount of weight that was lost by the people 
randomized to the time-restricted eating arm versus the group that got consistent meal timing. So on that point, this study ended up being a really good reminder of why it's so essential to have a control arm in, in clinical trials. Had you not included a control arm, how would the study have, have turned out differently? It's such a good point, Rebecca, and I'm so happy we did actually have a control arm. And it was interesting because there have been a number of uncontrolled studies of time-restricted eating that have been published in the past year or two, and they all show pretty positive results. And I was amused by when we unblinded our study and started to analyze the data, I was amused by playing the game of sort of just let's look at what happens just within the time-restricted eating group. So just the within groups difference. And, and there is, as many people have pointed out to me this week on Twitter, there is a statistically significant reduction in weight in the people who got assigned to TRE. The problem is the people in the control arm did as well. So I think this is it, a really important point to kind of get at, is this specifically about the intervention you're testing or is it something else? So Ethan, now that you have the study results, uh, you know, in your own life, are you still adhering to time-restricted eating? And what advice would you give to someone wondering whether they should continue with or try intermittent fasting themselves? I don't think I'm going to say anything about any other form of intermittent fasting, but for time-restricted eating, no, I stopped doing it. And I stopped doing it, um, A, because I thought, well, the data really look like this is at best of really weak intervention. And it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. Like my family hated it because we'd go out to do something like go for a hike and we'd have to time everything around when I'd be able to eat lunch because I'd be fasting from, you know, 8 p.m. the night before till, you know, 12 or so the next day. So as my wife is, you know, fond of pointing out, I would get pretty angry if I had to wait too long before uh, eating my lunch. So it was sort of an inconvenience. And then the other thing that we haven't discussed was that we did have this secondary endpoint that we looked at that sort of really caught our attention, which was that it looked like people who came in and got this intense metabolic phenotyping, it looks like the people who were randomized to time-restricted eating had a decrease in lean mass relative to a decrease in fat mass. So typically in, in weight loss studies, people tend to lose about 30% of their weight from lean mass and 70% comes from fat mass. We saw the opposite. We saw about 60, 65% of the weight coming off from lean mass and only 30% coming off from fat mass. So it made me think a lot about sort of why that might be. Again, it's early to say whether that's real. I, I want to be careful. But it, if it is real and there are reasons to think it is, it suggests that you're losing whatever little weight you're losing is coming from the wrong place. You're losing, you know, potentially muscle mass and not fat mass. As to what I'm saying to people now, I want to, I don't want to make two wrongs to make a right, right? I think I probably made a mistake by recommending this to people six, seven years ago. And so I think our study is is a small study and it's, uh, I think it's a good study, but it's certainly not perfect. I guess maybe my net is I'm going to be careful about what I recommend to people uh, in terms of what kind of nutrition program they do until we have better data across the board, which I think is my overall aspiration that we all just do a better job. Ethan, thanks as always for joining us. Very welcome. All right, Leslie, let's uh, end the podcast with a lightning round, and we will start with that presidential debate on Tuesday night, in which, at least for a little while, uh, for a few seconds, uh, Moderna, Pfizer, and some of the other COVID-19 vaccine players were mentioned. Here's a clip from that. Well, I've spoken to the companies, and we can have it a lot sooner. It's a very political thing, because people like this would rather make it political than save lives. Right. It is a very political thing. I've spoken to Pfizer, I've spoken to all of the people that you have to speak to. We have great Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, and others. They can go faster than that by a lot. 
And so Trump was, of course, speaking about the development of COVID-19 vaccines that these companies are are working on. And those statements uh, stand in, in pretty stark contrast to what his own administration officials have been saying, which is that uh, coronavirus vaccines will not be available for widespread distribution among everyday Americans until well into next year. What's interesting is it also stands in contrast to you know pretty much what each of those companies has said. I think the the key being wide availability, not necessarily you know a vaccine having proven its interim worth for emergency uses. So I guess what's fascinating, and, and I'm echoing our colleague Matt Herper, who wrote about this uh, earlier this week is more so that that Trump has positioned the drug industry as one being more trustworthy um, than the CDC, even though, as we said, they're pretty much saying the same thing. But two, you know, he's kind of implying that getting a vaccine before Election Day would be a political coup for him and that the, you know, dark forces somewhere that that are delaying that are doing so for political reasons. And so, like, you can kind of read between the lines that Donald Trump is kind of relying on the drug industry to deliver him a boost in the polls, which is interesting because, as we've talked about in this podcast, the drug industry, you know, maybe more so than any other segment of the American economy, has been something that Donald Trump doesn't particularly care for. And he's called them, for example, getting away with murder in the past and and other maybe more substantive policy things that would really affect their bottom line. I guess I will simply say that Trump contradicting himself and other people in his administration is like you and I breathing. All right, moving on. This week also brought on the COVID-19 front some interim data on an antibody treatment that could potentially help people with COVID-19 get better faster than they would on their own. Adam, what did we learn? Yeah, right. These data came from uh, Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, you know, the one of the companies that are developing these antibody treatments for people who are infected with COVID-19. And, you know, the results, again, early look somewhat promising ability to uh, help patients. And these are patients who were not hospitalized. So they showed, you know, reductions in viral load. I think they showed some reductions in symptoms, you know, all in. My feeling was to say, you know, this looked kind of promising, but at the same time, maybe relative to the high expectations that I think a lot of people had for antibody treatments, it's sort of coming into the pandemic, if you think back to like March and April, when we were kind of really high and talking about the promise of these kinds of treatments, maybe these results are a little bit disappointing from that perspective. And why do you think the promise of these antibody treatments has so far fallen so short? That's a really good question. And, and I'm not sure any anyone knows. I think a major part of it, and this is similar to the conversation we've had around vaccines, is that the novelty of COVID-19 means that we just don't know that much about you know, the immune response to it and what kind of immune response is necessary to sort of vanquish the virus from the body. So, um, you know, I think experts still say that antibody treatments are probably the best hope outside of vaccines for treating the infection. But as we get these data, and again, as Adam said, these Regeneron data are are early. Uh, Same thing with data from Eli Lilly on a similar antibody approach that we learned about, I believe, a month ago. So we will learn more as we go. But I think, you know, as with anything scientific, the actual uh, facts have been humbling compared with the speculation that preceded them. Yeah, the other thing that I would say is, remember, these are data that were generated in non-hospitalized patients. So I think we really need to see data in, in you know, patients with more severe COVID-19, particularly because, you know, Regeneron here is using a lot, a lot of drugs. These are very high doses that it's going to be difficult for them to manufacture. 
So moving on, the drug industry had a rough day in Washington on Wednesday. First, the House Oversight Committee released reports that exposed the internal strategies that were used by Celgene and Teva to repeatedly jack up the price of their blockbuster drugs. And then at a hearing, a trio of freshman lawmakers uh, grilled the CEOs of Teva, Celgene, and Bristol-Myers Squibb. And it was not pretty. So the major fireworks from that hearing came courtesy of California Representative Katie Porter, who has made a name for herself nationally, I think, in, in her short time in Congress, due to her very effective prosecutorial questioning uh, methods for executives and her use of a whiteboard to illustrate that. Revlimid is cost $763 per pill. I'm curious, did the drug get substantially more effective in that time? Did cancer patients need fewer pills? So in this instance, her victim seems like too strong of a, of a word, but uh, the subject of her inquiry was former Celgene CEO Mark Owls, a company that, of course, repeatedly raised the price of the cancer drug Revlimid. Um, and using that whiteboard, did she walk Mr. Owls very uncomfortably through how the escalating cost of Celgene's main drug helped him get richer and richer and fed his bonuses when he was CEO of that company. And uh, as with anything, it, it is deeply uncomfortable viewing, but also fairly great political theater. Yeah, you know, I'm sure the millions of dollars that Mark made when Celgene was acquired by Bristol Myers Squibb, you know, kind of cushioned the blow of this interrogation. But at the same time, if you if you get a chance to watch the clip on video, you really do need to watch it because, you know, it's, I think it's sort of exacerbated by the fact that it's being done remotely. So, you know, Kitty Porter is in Congress and Mark is in some gold encrusted bunker, you know, in his mansion. And <laughs> he's sitting there and you just kind of can see his, uh, I don't know, his dignity sort of evaporate. <laughs> <laughs> under these withering questions from Representative Porter. And it was striking to watch this exchange uh, in the COVID-19 era. It felt in some ways this subject uh, was from a, an earlier time. But I think at the same time, like this is a reminder of, of the reputation problems uh, that the drug industry has. And even as you know, people are counting on and, and hoping that uh, many of these same companies that are working on COVID-19 vaccines and treatments will, will save us, the drug industry still has um, some real issues with public perception and, and with drug pricing. You know, one of the most effective lines of questioning that she did during this thing was, you know, when she she went year by year and showed how uh, Revlimid's price kept going up higher and higher and higher. If you think about it, that's such a sort of a unique thing to the drug industry. If you think about an iPhone, for instance, or any technology where you're used to technology sort of filtering down and getting better and the price of these products, particularly consumer tech, right, going lower, right? We, we pay a lot less now than we did 10 years ago for the same technology. But with a drug, you pay a lot more for the same drug over time. And that's, uh, that's something that drug industry executives have a hard time explaining. I think, Rebecca, that's a really good point about how the hearing makes clear that basically the sins of the past of the drug industry haven't been forgotten despite the way, you know, the culture currently thinks about them with COVID-19. But it was also a reminder that the sort of inertia of the past of Congress still exists. Because in addition to, you know, we pull these clips of Representative Porter, Representative Presley, um, you know, saying really theatrical things to these to these men from these drug companies. But the actual three-hour hearing was mostly various Democrats and Republicans squabbling over which party was better suited to, you know, actually reduce the out-of-pocket costs of medicine for Americans. 
And that just kind of ended in the same sort of philosophical deadlock that we are very familiar with over the past four, eight, 12 years. So um, I, I don't know, in many ways, it felt like a, a welcome return to normalcy, but also perhaps kind of a disappointing return to normalcy, because it's a reminder that uh, not much changes on that front in Washington. does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and which guests you'd like to hear on this podcast in the future. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. Mm-hmm.